0: All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month and six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Lentesta, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, May 29th, 2023. Happy Memorial Day, everyone. On the show today, news listener questions and Magic Kingdom questions. Then in our main segment, Jim talks about how changes to the pool area of the Disneyland Hotel reflects design trends in Disney resorts all over. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that the person with the worst grades should also give a graduation speech just so we can hear from both sides. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going?
1: What's kind of ironic about this, Len, is I actually was invited to speak at my high school graduation. And I was not the valedictorian. I was not the salutatorian. The people who were setting up the event wanted to laugh so they figured, you know, the two pompous speeches by eighteen-year-olds. Oh, god! You know, I just, I just want this to be somewhat entertaining, and so I was invited to give a speech. And and the line that That's got awesome. the biggest reaction out of my speech basically was, "I need to wrap things up here because I'm standing there, in my cap and my gown." And what I basically said is. Nobody told me what I was supposed to wear under this thing, so if, if there's a sudden breeze we're all in for a really unsightly moment. <laughs> I'm sure that went over well. Back in seventy seven.
0: Yeah, it's fantastic. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Dave Quantum3, Swan Dolphin Dan, R. Jamerson, and Stuart Lee Talbot. And the longtime subscribers Ahibird, Gil Varad. Dave Alvarez, and Craig Goff Folsom. Jim, these are the Disney cast members prepping Food Rapper, The Peach Boys, and Chubby Cheddar to reunite as Food Rocks for the Summer Glastonbury Music Festival. They say that new character Tina Tuna will sing What's Meat Got to Do With It as a tribute at some point during the set.
1: True story. Oh, that's a nice nod to the late Ms. Ms. Turner. Very nice of them. Very cool.
0: All right, Jim, let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish Podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, Jim, uh, light news week this week. Mm -hmm. Let's start with all of the things that Disney is doing Mm -hmm. for annual pass holders. And I'm talking here about discounts and exclusive items. So mm-hmm. 20% off at select flower and garden food booths now through the end of June. And Jim, I had to go back here and see when was the last time that Disney offered annual pass holders discounts on food booths. And it's been a while. Oh, yeah. It's been many years, <laughs> but they're doing it. Okay. And uh, also, this is uh, you have to use a credit card or a debit card to purchase, not mm-hmm. cash. Mm-hmm. Also, merch discounts increase from 20% to 30%. And food and non-alcoholic beverage discounts increase from 10% to 20%. Mm-hmm. Annual pass holders, Jim, now have an exclusive seating area inside the Land Pavilion's Sunshine Seasons, also through June 30th. And Jim, mm-hmm. amazingly enough, we have a preview of the radio spot that Disney is about to use for this marketing campaign to annual pass holders. Aaron, can you roll that tape, please?
1: Oh, baby, please don't be like that. She meant nothing to me. I can change. I can change. <laughs> okay. All right, so, so, Jeff. <laughs> yes, yes. Huh? What do you think is going on here? Remember, just on last week's episode, you were talking about the new 99 per day ticket offer this summer, coupled yeah. with the Florida resident $69 ticket. Right. If ever yeah. we're looking at a canary in the coal mine about attendance for the summer is not what Disney World had hoped for, I just don't know if, given the way annual pass holders have been treated over the past couple of years, this is actually going to be enough to move the needle, but fascinating to watch.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested to see how the 2024 dining plan stuff and hotel rates are received by the general public mm-hmm. when they come out in a couple of days, because that's going to be another sort of leading indicator of how things are going to go for Disney in, in 2024. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be especially difficult for them, because I think we've got nothing opening till the end of 2024, right? Oh, yeah. Which means yeah. basically 2025. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. All right. Speaking of marketing, Jim, I hear that uh, Disney's hosting select social media influencers and national media outlets in New Orleans right now as we're recording this Mm -hmm. uh, purportedly to show them around all the places that inspired the upcoming Tiana's Bayou Adventure. And Jim, I mention this because my fondest memory of New Orleans is when the Miami Hurricanes defense adopted my 14-year-old brother on Bourbon Street (laughs) after the 1990 Sugar Bowl. This is a true story linebacker, Bernard Clark, was smoking a footlong cigar, put his arm around my brother and said he's coming with us. And that was a pretty short discussion. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they brought him back at 7 a.m. the next day. I was like, "Oh, OK, well, he lived. Anyway, I don't think uh, this is Disney's marketing idea. Uh, not exactly the same. Anyway, I would expect to see social media posts and articles when the embargo lifts this Thursday, June 1st. But, Jim, what's Disney trying to do here now, because the thing like you just mentioned that this doesn't open for eighteen months, what are we?
1: What are they doing here? Disney has kind of had trouble selling Tiano's Bayou Adventure, and I think part of the problem mm-hmm. is until such time as it, the attraction opens and people get inside and see it and discover, oh, it's charming. There's going to be a certain number of people who grouse about this. And yeah. so the hope is by taking these influencers down to New Orleans and selling them on their, well, that's a salt mine, oh, a mound. And, you know, this yeah. is a food cooperative. And, and, you know, this is, food is a real thing in New Orleans. You know, the whole notion of getting people on board with what Tiana is actually going to do. In 2006, the Walt Disney Company, because, of course, New Orleans had been devastated by Hurricane Katrina in October of 2005, they right. deliberately held their annual meeting in New Orleans that year. And that was where John Lasseter stood on stage and, and initially announced that what was then known as the Frog Princess movie which would, at that point was oh. supposed to star Maddie the maid was going to get made, and they also got pushback about that. Which is how Maddie was no longer made It became Tiana, the very ambitious young woman who wanted to have a restaurant of her own someday. So, kind of history repeating itself here. Oh, Okay, so then they've done this before. They know where to go. That's uh, there that's you go. All right,
0: we'll see what we'll see what happens mm-hmm. there. Yeah, I expect that uh, that this is going to be sort of like a year and a half charm offensive on uh, on
1: Disney's part. Yeah. And again, the other thing is this is their next big ride, Mm -hmm, right? So this mm -hmm. is the thing that they've got to sell. They definitely need people on board with it and excited about it. So see if you can get the influencers talking it up early. And and hopefully that turns around the way the project's perceived so far. All
0: right, Jim, we've got uh, time for some listener questions. Let's do them. First of all, a ton of questions Mm -hmm. about the future of the Galactic Star Cruiser after it was announced that it's closing. Mm -hmm. This coming September 29th. So, uh, Nicholas Scott and many others asked some variation on the question that says uh, Do you think any way that the Star Cruiser could be turned into a restaurant or regular hotel? Character style meals, still employing the same people and enjoying the different food as well. And then uh, Corey asked mm-hmm. Do you think they'll keep the hotel without the Star Cruiser experience? Since you've been on it, do you think that people would enjoy staying at the hotel as a standard Disney World experience? And if they did keep the hotel, what price category would it be, or would it be a DVC? Right, so let's answer that first. I, so, funny, Jim, you and I were talking about this right before the show began, but I actually had to call my accountant <laughs> to ask about yeah. ask about how this depreciation was going to work because Disney came out earlier this week and said they're going to take a hundred million dollar charge mm-hmm. in the third quarter and up to one hundred and fifty million dollars in the fourth quarter of twenty twenty three as uh, as impairment charges. Mm-hmm. For the Galactic Star Cruiser. So when I asked my accountant that, he, uh, he said, it sounds like they're abandoning it by doing that. Mm-hmm. So technically, they could turn around on October 1st and use it as something else. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like the way that they're doing it, that they're, that they're just preparing to walk away from it.
1: By the way, uh, tip of the hat to Jim Shule who's been so helpful to Len and I explaining about the way theme parks actually work, particularly when it comes to the financial obligations. I mean, should we pause the show right now so everyone can go into Wikipedia
0: and read the article titled Hollywood Accounting? (laughs) Uh, Maybe. We'll just assume that they're going to hit pause and do that. Okay, Okay. go ahead.
1: When you build a theme park attraction or a hotel or a a full-size theme park, there is – a financial aspect. There is, a, especially, a, a tax situation, and you want to help with your tax obligation to be able to depreciate, you know, certain aspects yeah. of that project over a set number of years. And when a project flames out so spectacularly, your initial plan for depreciation just falls by the wayside.
0: Right. So at something like the something like the hotel, you're looking at a thirty year depreciation.
1: This opened in March of 2022. It's closing October first. Yeah. That's 18 months of operation versus thirty years of depreciation. This is going to be difficult for the company to pivot and do something new with it quickly. We know Disney has brilliant lawyers. We know Disney has armies of accountants. Accountants, and They're yeah. probably all at work right now trying to figure out what, what <laughs> to do with, with the Galactic Star Cruiser or, or when it could possibly be repurposed as something new. The concern that I would have, or the, uh, the reason why I don't think they're going to
0: repurpose it to something new, at least right away, mm-hmm. is this. Let's say that they wanted to turn it into a regular hotel mm-hmm. or a dinner experience. That would mean investing more money in it right now. Yeah, And I'm not talking about like $50,000. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about millions of dollars mm-hmm. in investment. And there is such a thing as, you know, the sunk cost fallacy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea that you could throw more money after it and it would somehow turn around and be a success. I don't think that's what Disney's thinking right now i think they're looking at this and saying we tried it didn't work mm-hmm. we're not going to invest another 50 million dollars in this versus putting 50 million dollars in something else oh yeah i don't think this is going to be anything new anytime soon yeah uh, and going back to Corey's question about would it be you know would
1: it be a standard disney world hotel mm-hmm. it's actually not a great hotel <laughs> no no it's not for example, when Nancy and I stayed at the Halcyon, uh, Nancy, because she mm-hmm. uses a CPAP, she I, I insisted she stay in the actual bed, and, and I slept in the bunk bed, and boy, it slept yeah. just like a bunk bed. It's very firm mattresses. It's
0: very the – the, uh, the ventilation, uh, the air circulation in those bunk beds mm-hmm. –
1: is not great. Okay. They're also tiny, right? I mean the rooms are 180 square feet and there are no windows. Yeah. Well, I mean, you you have your faux window that looks out at the projection yeah. Which by the way, they're they're lovely projections. You know, are you they getting, are. They're lovely projections. Yeah. They are. But there's no
0: outside, right? There's no walking around. No. There's no pool. No. You know, there's no currently no bus service which they'd have to bring mm-hmm. into it if it's a hotel. Yeah. I mean, this could be maybe a moderate I don't think that they could charge deluxe prices. Again, there's also only one restaurant. So it's, it's definitely not a deluxe. It may be a DVC. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe that's it. Anyway, um, Kelly asked this question, Jim, Mm -hmm. do you think Disney's trying to counter the image of Disney world being a quote, elite vacation destination by closing the star cruiser? Mm -hmm. I know the bookings are really rough and they're expecting a few bad quarters. Maybe it's more than just a dollar and cents. Maybe the galactic star cruiser became symbolic
1: that's a fascinating insight, mm. Kelly.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting idea.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and Bob Iger has flat out said that he's a little concerned about the pricing situation of both the parks and the resorts. So,
0: you know, that's lip service. Wow. If they were concerned about it, they wouldn't be charging $30 a day for Genie Plus. There we go, there we go. Just saying, mm-hmm. yeah, that's, yeah, they're not going to give up the billion dollars in revenue on mm-hmm. that. All right. Also, uh, uh, Jim, uh, a couple of people sent in ideas. Mm-hmm. Jim Casota says, uh, I'm inspired by your episode for an idea for the Star Cruiser. How about Escape from the Trash Compactor? <laughs> that or Indoor's One Way Out Prison Escape? You know? I mean, uh, escape rooms are
1: popular, Jim. Going with that. I just, I, I love the idea of electric flying the floor to keep people in their rooms. <laughs> you know, <it's> like... <laughs> also, uh, Julie
0: Pear liked the idea, Jim, of a retheme to Muppets Pigs in Space, and she said this, Picture it, the Pigs in Space Hotel, but with the Swedish chef cooking in an open kitchen while Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem provide live music. Fozzie does late-night comedy, Kermit and Scooter have lost control of the whole thing, largely due to Gonzo and the chickens, and guests go on missions to help them put the show back together. Is it borderline Chuck e cheese Yes. But is it amazing? Also yes. Would absolutely pay thousands of dollars for this, just take my money. Husband and child agree 10,000%. You know, Jim, I, uh, I was floating the idea on social media earlier this week mm-hmm. of a uh, Pigs in Space Galactic Star Cruiser double live album <laughs> rock opera. And I'm not saying
1: no to that, Jim. I'm not saying no. Let's just up the ante here a little bit. Okay, we have the Electric Mayhem Limited Series that just right. recently yes. began on Disney+, yes. Plus, doing very well. Part of the problem of, of doing a Pigs in Space Anything is, you need a place to shoot it. Et voila, as the French say. That's it, exactly. Yes. You know, just, just pack up the performers, send them to Orlando, and shoot a, a Pigs in Space thing inside of the Halcyon. In fact, make it part of the joke, you know, to the effect of, yeah, we lost the swine trek, but we we're able to pick up the Halcyon for a song at a bankruptcy sale. <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> you know what? If they could, if they could. Take the cost of the Star Cruiser Mm -hmm. and spread it out over films. I think they could turn a profit on this. Again, Hollywood accounting, Uh, right?
1: And then it's Disney, Hollywood Studios. Uh, Do you want to visit the set where the Pigs in Space movies shoot? Absolutely. Get on our little box truck. Jim, 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 you're forgetting here. They have a bunch of trams backstage (laughs) (laughs) still.
0: How about how about the Galactic Star Cruiser tram tour? Uh, Okay. (laughs) Is anyone writing this down? Is anyone writing this down? (laughs) All right. Uh, Also in the emails this week, our friend Saba wrote in about the Aladdin dinner show Mm -hmm. that you and I talked about a couple of episodes ago. He says, I was listening to the uh, Aladdin's Oasis Indiana Jones show. And my family and I were lucky enough to see it in the summer of 2008. My little sister got called up to participate in a snake bit. Mm. And the show was very funny. I also remember being surprised that we couldn't meet Indiana Jones afterwards. Mm -hmm. Uh, Before Aladdin's Oasis closed, they used it for seating if you bought an electrical parade dining package. Mm -hmm. That's when I learned about the music loop. They had vaguely Middle Eastern versions of popular songs. And it was incredible. If anyone knows where I can find it, please let me know. Ooh, okay. <laughs> the internet's your friend, Saba. The internet's your friend. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, our friend Jim asked this question. Mm-hmm. Do you think Disney will drop the park reservation requirements for annual pass holders staying on property? My family and I are staying at the Riviera in March of 2024, and I'm the only one with an annual pass. I can see this being an issue for families. If my wife and kids have date-based tickets, mm-hmm. which allow for spontaneity, and I still have to make a reservation, it basically removes the option to go to any park for the rest of my party, assuming they actually want to spend any time with me. <laughs> 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 All right, valid point. Jim, yep. valid point. Mm-hmm. You know, I I think that uh, park reservation requirements are going to go away for annual pass holders if they also have a hotel stay. My guess is that between now and January, Disney's going to dedicate enough programming
1: resources to make that happen behind the scenes. So. Cool. So uh, downside, Jim, you're going to have to spend time with the wife and kid. So,
0: you know, that was a possibility he had to, be, he had to prepare for. It. So, <laughs> you know, he wasn't warned. I'm just saying. Okay. All right. And Jim, speaking of uh, other stuff, we've been testing magic kingdom touring plans that use early theme park entry. Mm-hmm. I want to mention this cause it's a, uh, I have a question for our listeners at the end of this. So we've, uh, we've started with the 10 most popular attractions for adults in the park excluding Tron, which is just virtual queues and individual lightning lane right now. So the the 10 attractions in alphabetical order are Big Thunder, Buzz Lightyear, Haunted Mansion, It's a Small World, Jungle Cruise, Peter Pan, Pirates of the Caribbean, Seven Dwarves, Space Mountain, and the People Mover. Mm -hmm. So for each test, we're comparing the best touring plan from our software Mm -hmm. against what Magic Kingdom cast members think is the best plan when they're in the park as well. So it's not a perfect Mm apples-to-apples comparison because... We're asking the people who follow the touring plan to follow it exactly without deviation while the cast members can do whatever they think is best at every step Hmm. so they can adapt during the test while the plan people can't. But anyway, that's fine. Um, Anyway, so a couple of uh, initial opening sequences. This is kind of like opening sequences in chess moves. Mm -hmm. Uh, A couple of them we're testing are this. Uh, The first one is Seven Dwarfs Mine Train, then Peter Pan's Flight, then Space Mountain. And then the other one is Seven Dwarfs Mine Train, Space Mountain, and Buzz Lightyear. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is that for the last three days, where we've had like four people in the parks at a time for three days. So 12 people days of testing. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's what we've seen. Everyone gets to Seven Doors Mine Train right before opening. The cast member says, hey, you know what? Seven Doors Mine Train isn't running right now. Good luck. Go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. That's fine. Okay. Then we send, we just, you know, I, I get these frantic calls at like, you know, 828 a.m., mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, half the people go to Peter Pan, half the people go to Space Mountain. Mm -hmm. And then invariably, Jim, at 8.32, I will get a call from half the people saying, we've gotten to space, and now it's down. What do we do? So early morning downtime is making it really hard and really expensive Mm -hmm. to do just basic testing at the Magic Kingdom right now. And and that got me thinking, and this is what I want from our listeners, Mm -hmm. right? The way we get around downtime at the studios, you and I talked about this, mm-hmm. is by telling people to buy individual lightning lane for Rise of the Resistance. What if we did the same thing at the Magic Kingdom and told people to buy individual lightning lane for Seven Dwarfs Mine Train? That makes the plan more resilient because you can ride it at any time after your lightning lane is valid and you can take advantage of lower weights at other fantasy land Tomorrowland Attraction. So that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So the question I have for listeners is this. How much time in line would you have to save over the course of a day in order to justify paying for individual Lightning Lane for Seven Doors Mine Train? And that's not just savings at Seven Doors Mine Train. What if it meant you could also save like 20 minutes at Peter Pan, 10 minutes at Space Mountain, 10 minutes at Jungle Cruise, and so on? How much of that time would you need to save
1: in order to rationalize paying for Seven Doors Mine Train individual Lightning Lane? Let me know. You have talked about this before, about, you know, you are on vacation and you only have so much time in Orlando. So you can put a definite price point, a monetary value on your time. Right. We assume
0: that every hour in the park, Mm -hmm. when you're looking at tickets and stuff like that, is $15 an hour per person. Okay. Rough estimate. Wow. All right, uh, let's look about that. And if you guys have any, uh, any ideas, let us know, either via email or on social media. Cool. Jim, we're going to take a quick commercial break now. When we come back, you are going to tell us about how changes to the pool area at the Disneyland Hotel reflects how Disney presents the parks to us as mm-hmm. guests.
1: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help.
0: Alright, Jim and I are recording this show just a few weeks before the long Memorial Day weekend, which is when folks traditionally start doing things like summertime activities, opening the pool, going for a swim, and whatnot. Pools have always been part of the fun of a Disney vacation. Everyone remembers sliding down the volcano into the lava pool at the Polynesian the first time, or touching the sand bottom at the pool in Stormalong Bay at the beach resort.
1: But Jim, you want to talk about pools in general, right? Actually, what I want to talk about was the first pool of size, the first one with some genuine stature, which would have to be the heated Olympic-sized pool at the Disneyland Hotel, which became available to guests in in July of 56, but didn't formally Mm -hmm. open up till August 25th of that same year. The Disneyland Hotel has a very colorful history, one that, by the way, author Don Ballard has done a great job of documenting. And and if you want to learn more about this soon-to-be 67-year-old resort... Suggest you check out Don's two books on the topic. There's the hardcover, Disneyland Hotel, The Early Years, 1954 to 1988. And then the paperback, Disneyland Hotel, 1954 to 1959, The Little Motel in the Middle of the Orange Grove. And today's story starts with, as Don called it, The Little Motel in the Middle of the Orange Grove. Disneyland started out with a motel, not a hotel. And we all already know the story of about how Walt Disney, when he was building his family fun park back in 54, just did not have the money at the time to build a hotel next to Disneyland. Held, Walt barely had enough money to finish the park itself. So this is why Disney turns to early television producer, Jack, rather. Uh, Jack's the guy behind mm. the, the original Lassie and Lone Ranger TV series mm. and begs him to build a, a, a hotel, a motel, anything next to Disneyland Park. Did Jack have any sort of lodging experience at this point?
0: <laughs> like, I'm like, hey, you, you know, you're doing well with that border, <laughs> the border collie over there. <laughs> how, do you,
1: how do you feel about running a hotel? <laughs> oh, God, no. He didn't have an experience. In fact, this is why the Disneyland Motel didn't open until October 5th, 1955, some three months after Disneyland Park opened. Originally supposed to open with 104 rooms at the ready, but on the very sure. first day, the Disneyland Motel threw open its doors. Only seven rooms were ready for occupancy, and <laughs> it's a boutique hotel, Jim. <laughs> there were eight rooms in the, this block of rooms, so seven were available for occupancy, and the other one became the lobby, check-in desk, reservations, oh, where God. you stored your luggage. You know, yeah, just put it oh, in the back. The lobby was you know? the lo- okay, so the lobby wasn't ready either. Oh God, no, nothing. <laughs> Was ready. <laughs> All right. In fact, you know, yeah, as beautiful. I understand it, they had a an you know, opening day party, and the party you know starts to wrap up, and people who've, who've had maybe one or two many beverages were looking to to crash in their tell and no, the seven rooms are full. <laughs> you know, you, yeah, you know, what's the old, the old saying about like, at the end of a party? You you don't have to leave, but you can't stay here. Yeah, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay. There here. We go. Exactly. Exactly.
0: So.
1: All right. By the way not jack rather's fault we all know about the the labor strikes and the material shortages. i mean for example remember when they, the asphalt workers uh, union job action threatened to yeah. rail D- disneyland's opening back in july 55 all of that was still going on land and the disneyland motel which they called a hotel but really was a motel for those first few months i, I just got cut short by these strikes and material shortages but even so Jack felt bad, and so he turns to Walt and says, tell you what, I'm gonna press ahead with construction in this place, by next summer, We'll have double mm-hmm. the number of rooms on site. So how about we forget- rooms what, on site. <laughs> yeah, there we go. We'll have 15 rooms open. So how about we just forget what happened in October of 55, and we have the official grand opening of the Disneyland Hotel then. Sure. And that's exactly what happened. Of course, by then, you know, late August of 56, they've now got 200 rooms open, uh, also a collection right. of shops and restaurants around that resort's new crown jewel, which was a heated Olympic-sized pool. Nice. At this point, mid-1950s, the Disneyland Hotel is the first major new resort to be built in Southern California since the 1940s. Okay, hold up one second. Hold on. The Disneyland Hotel Mm -hmm.
0: was the first major hotel to be built in all of Southern California in over a decade.
1: After the war, there was this pivot into the the soldiers are coming home. There's the GI Bill. I mean, we saw the expl- building
0: residential stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, okay, we saw
1: the explosion of the suburbs, but not necessarily hotels, yeah. resorts, and also on a parallel track, the Flamingo first opens in Las Vegas in December 46. Uh, all, the, all the hotel money's going into Vegas. That's it exactly. Uh, all right. Okay. Given the gaming laws of that era. The Disneyland Hotel couldn't have what the Sands in Las Vegas uh, installed back in 54. And Len, I swear to God, you can see this online. It's an image of, when I say poolside slots, I mean they are literally on the edge of the pool. And then in the middle of the pool is, is, I swear to God, a literal floating crap table. Yeah. I mean, Jim, this
0: is just American innovation. That's all I'm saying.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Okay, They can't have gambling, right? And they can't have dancing girls. No, they can't. But uh, Disneyland could have, Oh, the Disneyland Hotel could have a heated Olympic-sized pool. On the other hand, Jack Rather, veteran Hollywood producer, was a master of publicity. And and he used that Olympic-sized pool to help promote his ever-growing operation in Anaheim whenever he could. Uh, Case in point, spring of 1959, Walt is just about to finish construction of Tomorrowland submarine voyage and realizes, hey, Wouldn't it be cool if we hired some Southern California locals, some pretty young girls, to pull out of plastic tails and then lounge out in the middle of this 9 million gallon lagoon pretending to be mermaids? Sure. And Jack Rather hears about this idea, reaches out to Walt and says, well, obviously the young ladies you're you're looking to hire just for safety's sakes will actually have to be able to swim. So why don't we hold the auditions for Disneyland's new mermaids here at the hotel in our Olympic-sized pool? Yeah, exactly. He's just concerned about everyone's safety. That's all. That's, that's exactly. You know, I mean, we want to know if they can actually swim. Uh, by the way, it was it was really important that they they knew how to swim. I mean, especially given they couldn't use their legs after they were zipped up to the tail, and these young ladies would have to. Uh, you know, yes, they spent. You know, ninety percent of the shift lounging on rocks in the middle of the lagoon, waving at people. But they still had to swim out there and they yeah. still had to swim back. And at least during the early days of the Operation Len, they were encouraged to periodically swim down as a sub was was going by and wave to the tourists inside. Could you imagine, Jim, if you
0: had to get if you had to get insurers to underwrite this today. Oh, oh,
1: what what that PowerPoint would look oh, like. God. This would never happen today. <laughs> and, and, and especially the <laughs> on the heels of what was discovered after the first, I mean again, this starts in summer of 59. You weren't considered healthy if you didn't have a deep tan. And what they notice is their tans began to fade because they were swimming in, in harsh chemicals to keep the water clear and not to mention their hair falling out, Len. Again, Jim, it was a different time. It, 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 it was a, different. Exactly. Time. <laughs> but by the time they launched the new Tomorrowland in 67, the mermaids were no longer lounging on rocks. And in fact, they're probably Go in a hospice even as we speak. So getting back to the Mermaid Edition, spring of 59. Walt loves this idea. He and Jack arranged that all of the wire services, not to mention major magazines and newspapers, have reporters there at the Disneyland Hotel to cover these auditions. Dozens of young ladies from Orange County come out, and stand around in bathing suits, sure. hoping to land this coveted gig. And this garners tons of free publicity for the Disneyland Submarine Voyage, which opens in the park June 14th, 59, also shines a spotlight on the Disneyland Hotel, which it Mm-hmm. just expanded its pool size amenities to include the Coral Swim club, which would then deliver refreshments including adult beverages if you were an adult, I mean, to those splayed out on lounge chairs uh, trying to also get a tan in that Southern California Sun, which not a poolside slot machine or an actual floating crap table, but still, but you could still get an adult beverage delivered to your poolside yeah. lounge chair. So a little bit of Vegas and Anaheim, you know absolutely fun. Okay, anyway, we jump ahead to June of 1961. Walt extends the monorail route by 2.5 miles over to the Disneyland Hotel. Walt spent $1.9 million to do that. And Jack Rather turns around and makes a similar size investment in the Disneyland Hotel. Breaks ground in October of 1961 on the Tower Building. Uh, I always forget this, yeah, that the towers were sort of an, uh, a secondary... And The problem is that the towers have changed their name so many times. I mean, this tower that opened in 62 was initially the single tower on site. Then in 1970, the, the second tower was built. So the first tower gets dubbed the Sierra Tower. Then in 2007... After the Disneyland Hotel has been acquired away from the Rather Corporation and is getting sort of a Disney reimagining, rebranding, Sierra Tower becomes the Dream Tower. And then, if you're not already confused enough, 2012, uh, the Dream Tower becomes the Adventure Tower and... Len is, as far as I know, right now the Adventure Tower is still called the Adventure Tower, but he, but it's early yet. They could change the name before we finish the show.
0: You know, the uh, the the paperwork is easy to print. So Jim, it's it's one of them is dedicated to Frontierland. One one of them is dedicated to Adventureland. Mm. Is the
1: third one Fantasyland? I want to say yes. And what about the DVC they just built? Is that tied to a particular area in the park? Ah, we'll have to go back and look. I, we actually have a guy from uh, our Disneyland
0: on-site person uh, going on opening night, so we'll, we'll get a full report on that when it happens. Oh, that's great in to hear! In September, yeah, it should be good. Yeah. I love Guy's work, he does great stuff. Okay, so back in 1962.
1: Okay, so what makes the tower building, which by the way, 11 stories tall, which makes it the tallest building in all of Orange County at that time, even features a glorious glass elevator that'll take you to the top of the hotel to the the top of the park cocktail lounge, where again, you can get an adult beverage. But the big selling point is the tower is directly adjacent to Disneyland Hotel's Olympic-sized pool. And by the way, just in case you're wondering, with the construction of the tower building at the Disneyland Hotel, the hotel now has 450 rooms. Okay. There is a downside to being Walt Disney's business partner, at least when it came to the Disneyland Hotel. And that would be this theme park's off-season, which back in 1955 to 1985 was considered to be eh, September through late November and then January through late May. So it was during this slow time of year when the kids were typically back in school that Disneyland, well, from 55 to 57, was, was originally closed just on Mondays. And, but then hmm. starting in 1958 and then extending all the way through the early portion of 1985, was then closed on Mondays and Tuesdays. That's insane. Yeah. I mean, why would would anyone stay there like Sunday night, Monday night? No, that's exactly. So if you're the Disneyland Hotel, what do you do in a situation like this where, where the very thing that is supposed to compel people to drive down to Anaheim and come stay in your hotel is now closed two days a week for basically seven and a half months out of the year? Well, if you're a Jack Rather... You get inventive. You start by uh, beginning to go after corporate business uh, in the early 1960s. That's why bottom floor of the, the original tower building had eight convention conference rooms with the notion of you offer it on Monday and Tuesdays at a particularly low rate to get corporate groups to come out. You also explore other revenue streams, which is why in 1970. On the site where Goofy's Kitchen and Steakhouse Fifty Five sit today, Jack Rather had the World of Water Marina built, a 3.5-acre outdoor attraction. But one of the biggest chunks of this was basically an outdoor showroom for the latest and greatest in watercraft. So you could literally stroll around along a full faux pier. And check out the most recent sailboats, powerboats, houseboats, where if you liked what you saw, you could then talk with an an on-site sales rep who, after you you signed the necessary papers, could then have... (laughs) then arrange to have the very same piece of watercraft delivered to your house post-vacation. And I, lo- I love this idea. Go well, ahead. Well, you know, just it sounds to me like the Disneyland Hotel really missed out on a merchandising opportunity. I mean, imagine the T-shirt. <laughs> My family went to the Disneyland Hotel, and all we got was this 24-foot-long cabin cruiser. It's like... <laughs> you know, Jim, I'm, I'm,
0: uh, I'd like to point out that uh, I don't think Disney's going to reopen Steakhouse 55. Yeah. So if they're looking for a high-end marketing
1: opportunity... Power boats, Jim. Power boats. <laughs> well, now I, I, I'm so glad you brought up the Steakhouse 55 thing because yeah, you know, I, don't, I don't think I don't think it's reopening yet. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. yeah, there was something uh, to the effect in, in January of this year they put up curtains along the outside and a sign to the effect of "We're reimagining this space." And are we hearing anything in regard to what's going in there? Or? I think Jim, step one would be hire people with ideas
0: <laughs> for this space because I don't know that they're, they have enough people
1: right now in Imagineering to. You know, the yeah. upside is they did have that sign that sat outside of the Carousel of Progress for like a decade and a half. You know, they could just pull that out instead of in storage and put that in front of Steakhouse Fifty Five. You know, like they uh, they did the animation
0: experience, or they're still doing the animation experience for a while over at the Animal Kingdom. Mm-hmm. I expect one of these days it's going to be like. Imagine we gave you a space the size of this restaurant. <laughs> what would you
1: come up with as a concept here? That's a cool yeah, idea. We'll see. Anyway. All right. Okay, so anyway, mind you, directly adjacent to the world of water were the seaports of the Pacific, which was an attraction that rivaled the Disneyland Hotel's Olympic size pool in size, but had this crazy selection of water-based activities. There was there was a fishing pond two-passenger paddle boats that you could rent. And this is the one, I, I, I apologize, folks. I'm, a, I'm beginning research on this, and we'll get back to you because it, it's a pretty spectacular claim to fame. But the, according to this, the seaports of the Pacific at the Disneyland suppo- uh, Hotel supposedly had the world's very first video arcade in 1970. What? That's the same noise I made, Len. So yeah. um, so I apologize, folks. I'm going to continue research on this topic. In fact, we'll talk about this addition to the Disneyland Hotel, not to mention what how this resort's pool areas got transformed when the Walt Disney Company wrestled the Anaheim Resort away from the Rather Corporation in 88 next week when I do the second half of today's story. I love
0: the idea of being able to – test out fishing equipment next to Disneyland. Like,
1: I think that's a great idea. What to you, Len says, Disneyland vacation like a fish hook embedded in your cheek? <laughs> I, I,
0: I, you know that somebody uh, was probably smelling like trout uh, there as they were wa- walking around uh, Tomorrowland one day, anyway, and that that's what killed it, I'm sure.
1: But still, it was memorable. Yeah. It was, it was, and 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 again, this was also prior to sushi being popular in America.
0: By the way, did you did you read the New York Times? It was the New York Times or the Washington Post article about how sushi came to the United States. No. It, two guys post, uh, post-World post War II. Yeah, it's a really it's a really good story. Oh, I'll
1: we'll have to chase that down.
0: All right. Well, you do that, that's going to be it for the show today. <laughs> Folks, you can help support our show and Gmail Media by subscribing over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. We will find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. In fact, Jim and I are about to record a show about our experience on the Galactic Star Cruiser. Also, we have an email now for tech support at Bandcamp, and that is support at Bandcamp.com. On next week's show, it's the Jim Hill Hour, since I'll be in Maine for my daughter Hannah's birthday, and we'll finish up this Disneyland pool story. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who will be playing Polonius, Rosencrantz, and Guildenstern, accompanied by a bottle of Bushmills' 16-year-old single malt whiskey, at drunk Shakespeare, D.C., Starting at 7 p.m. and God help him 9 p.m. this Friday, June 2nd, 2023 at the Sage Theater at Franklin Square North in beautiful downtown Washington, D.C. While Aaron's doing that, please go on to iTunes and our Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.